0: Good morning. morning. How's everybody doing today? Good. I'm excited to be here, and uh, thanks for being here. Whether it's your first time or you've been coming for a while, my name is Eric. I get to be the pastor here. We are officially in Christmas season, and I am so excited about that. Uh, As my wife and I have been talking about, you know, what do we get our kids, and thinking about Christmas shopping and gifts and things like that, I couldn't help but think about, you know, all the uh, toys that I wanted when I was a kid. And uh, I'm a child of the 80s, that's when I grew up. Any other 80s kids? Yeah, I grew up in the 80s. So I was thinking about some of our childhood, uh, some of the great Christmas presents maybe you got or you grew up with. Uh, Number one, the original Nintendo. Yeah, yeah. who had one of those? Excellent. Uh, Strawberry Shortcake, ladies, remember? Or guys, Strawberry Shortcake, yeah? How about uh, Cabbage Patch Kids? Yeah? Who had a Cabbage Patch Kid? I didn't, but awesome. And uh, Star Wars action figures. They are not dolls, they're action figures, right? Right, right. We don't play with dolls. Uh, Teddy Ruxman, anyone have one of those? Yeah. Who else? That kind of freaked you out. Like the way it moved in its eyes, I'm like, no, thank you. I didn't want one of those. Uh, you know, the 80s, they were a great decade. They included you know, Full House, Zubas. Who else had Zubas? Zuba pants, yeah, that's right. Uh, and the wonder of the Sony Walkman. Uh, it was a great decade, but. See, so what happens is the farther removed we get from the era that we grew up in, whether that's the 70s or the 60s or the 80s or the 90s or whatever, uh, the more our thinking can get away from reality. Our view of history can get a little blurred. We can romanticize kind of the 80s or the 90s or whatever. Well, here we are, 2,000 years removed from the time of Jesus. And it's safe to say that our view of Jesus can be shaped by things other than history. And so if you're taking notes this morning, you can write these down, that our view of, of Jesus sometimes is shaped by, number one, pop culture. Pop culture. Uh, you have bands like The Killers, Green Day, Carrie Underwood, U2. It seems like so many different artists have had songs about Jesus. Uh, even those that don't write songs about Jesus oftentimes will take time to thank him at award ceremonies. Uh, clothing. Uh, we've we got some different t-shirts up here. Number one, we've got Real Men Love Jesus. Yeah, that's a great shirt. Number two. Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. I like that shirt. Uh, Jesus saves, I spend. (laughs) Oh, man. And then the classic, uh, Jesus is my homeboy. There you go. Yes. Uh, You know, over 17,000 books have been written about Jesus. Magazines like to put them on their cover because they know that's going to get their sales up. Then you have merchandise. Uh, Bobblehead Jesus, stamps, mugs, and my personal favorite, Testaments. Anybody have Testaments? That's Christian mints. I love it. Uh, pop culture can shape who we think Jesus is. Number two, religion. Maybe you grew up Catholic, and maybe you grew up seeing Jesus always on a crucifix, and you're like, why should I even pray to him if he's still on a cross? How can he help me? Maybe you grew up in a traditional Lutheran or Methodist church, and you were taught that Jesus is a great example, but all of those miracles, they're just myths and made up by the early church to help us follow Jesus and his example. Maybe you grew up with no religion at all, and Jesus Christ was just something you said when you stubbed your toe. I don't know. Uh, Number three, uh, maybe family and friends influenced your view of Jesus. Uh, The people that you grew up with absolutely shaped how you see Jesus. Maybe you grew up in a setting where you were taught that Jesus is just against everything. He's against radar movies, against rock and roll, against playing cards, against dancing. Maybe your view of Jesus was that he's a cosmic killjoy just waiting to strike you down if you break the rules. Jesus is that referee uh, enforcing the moral code of don't smoke, don't chew, don't date girls who do. Anyone else grow up like that? Yeah. <laughs> maybe your parents taught you directly or indirectly that Jesus was always angry. Don't disobey or God will get mad at you. Maybe you're taught that Jesus is always serious. It's like, shh, we're in church. Wear your Sunday best. Like, Don't run, don't smile in church, don't talk, because Jesus is very serious. Or maybe, maybe you didn't grow up with any kind of exposure to Jesus And you're exploring who he is for the first time right now, and you're kind of like, what is all the commotion around Christmas time about Jesus? And so you're coming in just kind of asking questions. The result is that everyone has an opinion about Jesus. You can't be neutral about him. Everyone has an opinion about Jesus. You think of him sometimes maybe as Mr. Rogers. He's just kind of skipping through the neighborhood, singing songs with the sound of music, patting kids in the head. He's just a nice guy. Or Dr. Phil, he's like a therapist who's trying to fix everyone's problem. Or he's like Abraham Lincoln, you know, a great historical figure who did some good stuff. Uh, That's about it. The challenge is we have to sort through all these stereotypes and figure out who Jesus really is. I think it's good to start with the history of who he is. Jesus was born in a dumpy, rural little hick town called Bethlehem. You know, it's like those small little towns in southeast Minnesota. Who else is from little southeast Minnesota? Southwest Minnesota? Southwest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like where the number one sport is NASCAR, number one meal is Hot Pockets. Where they enjoy chewing tobacco, rocking a good mullet, and that's just the women. Uh, <laughs> as you probably know, Jesus was born to an unwed teenage mother named Mary. And even though she claimed that the Holy Spirit had conceived her, people kind of looked at her sideways like, yeah, right. You're probably knocking boots with some Roman soldier at the prom, and that's how you got pregnant. As Jesus grew up, really no one paid too much attention to him. For the first 30 years of his life, he was you know, live pretty uh, relative obscurity. Just the average guy. Prophet Isaiah tells us there's nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him, which is pretty ironic because every picture I've ever seen of Jesus, he looks like a GQ model with like piercing blue eyes, a nice chiseled jawline, and he always has a lamb draped over his shoulder, right? Like that's, that's a picture that we get oftentimes of Jesus. But I'm sure what, maybe it's disappointing to you is that he was simply average in many ways. His resume is as plain as it can be. He never oversaw a large company. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles from his home, never went to college, never visited a big city, never wrote a book, never married, never held a political office. In his lifetime, he spoke to fewer people than gather at one single U2 concert. We've got a couple of contractors here at Mosaic, which I think is awesome. For work, Jesus was a a contractor. He was a carpenter. He swung a hammer and carried a toolbox. He framed houses. He put on roofs. He remodeled homes. And then at 30 years of old he put down his toolbox and he started teaching people. He started doing miracles. He started, he started befriending social midfits. And then at three and a half years later, he's executed by the government. And yet today, Jesus is the most famous person who has ever lived. More songs have been written about him. More artwork has been created of him. More books written about him than anyone who's ever lived. He's so influential that we actually date history before him and after him. And the two biggest holidays, Christmas and Easter, are about him. So the question we must address at some point in life, if Jesus is such a dominant figure of history, is who is Jesus really? And why did he come to earth? See, the question for this series is, how do we not just survive Christmas? Because it can be a little nuts with with holiday parties and, and the decorating, the presents. How do we not just survive Christmas, but how do we thrive during the Christmas season? How do we thrive Well, you discover the person behind the holiday. And that's what we want to do, is we want to discover the person behind the holiday. Who was Jesus really? Let's let go of our preconceived ideas, our assumptions, maybe things that we were taught growing up that we never actually explored the Bible, if that's really true. Well, to know someone, you have to know where they came from. That helps you know someone's stories. Where did they come from? And that's where Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, starts off and talking about Jesus. So that's where we are going to start. Matthew 1, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with us. You can follow along on a a smart phone. We'll be going through the first uh, 16 verses of Matthew today. Uh, I just want to start in verse 1. Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you that uh, during this Christmas season that you are here. And God, that you are near to us. God, we pray that we wouldn't just survive this next month, that God, we would thrive, that we would discover you and who you are and why you came to this earth. So, God, be with us now in this time. Open our hearts, open our minds. We ask that your word, your Bible, God, would be illuminated into our hearts and minds, and that we'd leave here with a bigger picture of who you are. Amen. Matthew's introduction as he kicks off the New Testament echoes the language of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. In fact, that Greek word genealogy is actually the word Genesis. It's actually the word Genesis. And it's not just the title for the genealogy. It's the title for the entire entire story that's to come. It's a new beginning with the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, and the kingdom of God. Jesus, or a Hebrew word, Yeshua, it means Yahweh, God saves Jesus Christ, he's the anointed one, son of David, evokes images of a Messiah with a royal lineage who'd establish the kingdom of God, and then the son of Abraham. Matthew wants us to remember God's covenant with Abraham. We talked a lot about that last year when we went through the book of Genesis, and that how he established Israel as his chosen people, and that they'd be blessed to be a blessing to the rest of the world, and that one day one would come through the line of Abraham where all the world would be blessed. Now, modern-day readers, like you and me, we don't really understand genealogies too much. But ancient people, they've been very, very interested to read this. Uh, just let's be honest here. When you're reading the Christmas story and uh, you get to, like, the genealogies, like, you know, in the King James Version, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so. How many of you just skip that part? It's okay. Let be honest. Yeah, so that's what we're going to study today because I think we so often skip all that. And so I thought we'd do something slightly different. Um, Instead of just reading it, um, I thought I'd sing it. How how do you guys like that? Is that good? All right, Um, so I'm going to grab my guitar and I'm going to sing the genealogy of Jesus. You guys pumped? I'm pumped. I'm excited. Am I good? you hear that out there? Good. All right, here we go.
1: Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac he had Jacob, and Jacob he had Judah and his kin. Then Perez and Zerah came From Judah's woman, and Samar Perez, he brought Hezan up And then came Aaron then Amenadab Then as Then the dad of Salmon Who with Rahab fathered Boaz Ruth she married Boaz Who had Obed, who had Jesse Jesse, he had David Who we know as king David he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife Solomon well you all know him he had good old Rehoboam followed by Abijah who had Asa Asa had Jehoshaphat had Joram had Uzziah who had Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah Father by Manasseh who had a man who was a man Who's father of a good boy named Josiah Who grandfathered Jehoiakim, Who caused the Babylonian captivity Because he was a liar Then he had Shealtiel who begat Zerubbabel Who had Abiad who had Eliakim Eliakim Eda who had said who had was the father of Eli. He had Eliezer who and Matthew knew at Jacob. Now listen very closely, I don't wanna sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Christ. <clears throat> Thank you,
0: thank you, thank you. I'm not doing that again. Uh, Lots of good stuff in there, though. Uh, So if you're following your Bible, you can also read along in the names. The main message, though, that Matthew wants to get across to us, if you're taking notes today, is why does he share this genealogy? Again, this would have been hugely important to ancient people, and we like to gloss over it. But number one, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. See, God made a promise to both Abraham and David He promised to Abraham, through one of your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And David was promised that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and his reign would last forever. And now, through Jesus Christ, both promises are going to come true. Here's the thing, though, that we learn from Matthew 1, is that God keeps his promises. But look how long it took for God to keep his promises. Over a thousand years but he did keep his promises. On the way to fulfilling those promises, things got pretty dark. It didn't look like God was going to come through. In fact, at the end of the Old Testament, uh, Malachi, you actually have 400 years of darkness, of silence, of God not speaking before Matthew writes his gospel. And all the kings had died out. How is the son of David going to be king when all the kings are gone? The people have been sent into exile and then came back, and now they're under the thumb of the mighty Roman Empire. How is the descendant of Abraham going to bless the whole world when they're living under the shadow of Rome? But when Jesus comes, the promised Messiah, he was a greater Messiah than they could possibly imagine. Here's the lesson for you and me is that, number one, God always fulfills his promises, but he never operates on our time frame. God always fulfills His promises, but he never operates on our time frame. It never happens when we think He should. It's like God come through and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. And even the way He's working to fulfill his promises, it doesn't look like He's going to come through. But when he does, it's going to be greater than we can possibly imagine. God is not a tame God. <laughs> he's not a tame God that, that is just in some box. But he always fulfills his promises, but it's always going to take longer than we think it should. And when he fulfills his promises, it's going to be greater than we can possibly imagine. Number one, God always keeps his promises. Number two, if you're taking notes, grace changes all the categories. Grace changes all the categories. Now, there's a lot of names in Matthew's genealogy that I sang. And the first time you read it, your eyes can start to glaze over, especially in the King James Version, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. But this morning, there's a couple of names I want to point out. In particular, I want to look at the women that Matthew mentions. First, it was incredibly rare in the ancient world that you would uh, find in a genealogy any mention of women. And Matthew is scandalous. Matthew is like one of the very first feminists that we find in literature. He doesn't just include one woman in Jesus' genealogy. He includes five women. That's very unusual that he would mention any women, let alone five Second, the character of the women that he mentions is even more scandalous. Why is this genealogy here? Why did they even have these genealogies? Why is it important to know who was in your family? See, if you want a place in the world, if you want to succeed, you have to have the right credentials. In our world, it's your resume. Where did you study? You know, where, where, what have you accomplished? What have you worked where have you worked? That's how you get a place in this world. That's how you get ahead. So you get a job and get ahead in life. It's, it's your resume. But that's not how it was in the ancient world. It wasn't your resume that opened doors. It was your genealogy that opened doors. See, we live in a very highly individualized culture. The question is, what have you accomplished? And so that will set you up for success. But that's not how it was in the ancient world. When Matthew wrote his gospel 2,000 years ago, it wasn't the individual resume that mattered so much as, Who's your family? What have they accomplished? Not what have you accomplished. What has your family done? What are they like? Because when people know what your family's like and where you come from, they'll have a better idea of kind of who you are. And so in the ancient world, if you wanted a place in the world, you pointed to your genealogy and said, this, is, this shows kind of who I am. And in our world, sometimes we'll leave things off our resume to make ourselves look better, Right? It's like, oh, man, I don't want them to call that reference or, or that person I work for because they might find out this crazy thing about me, so I'm going to take that off. We expunge our resumes. You leave off anything questionable that might not make you look so good. And We put on our best face when we go to interviews, and we just want to give the best stuff forward. And the ancient world is very similar. When you listed your genealogy, you didn't have to give every single ancestor. So you'd expunge your genealogy to remove people from your family history who might make you look bad. You're like, yeah, I'm gonna take them out. We do this today, right? Like with our kids. Like, we're talking about our family. Don't talk about crazy Uncle Billy. Like, you know, like talk about just the good family members. Let's, let's let's not talk about the crazy uncles. And back then, you didn't put people on your genealogy unless you were proud of them. You put your people on your genealogy who showed who you were. Are you starting to see what's going on here? First, Jesus puts five women on his resume, on his genealogy. It wasn't that no one did this, it was just incredibly rare. Why? At this time, Jesus is living in a very patriarchal society. Men are up here, women are down here. So you wanted people to know who your fathers were. You didn't really care about kind of who your mothers were. So the fact that he's got five women on here, that raises some eyebrows. And who they are is even more concerning. Ruth was a Moabite, Rahab was a Canaanite, they weren't even Jews. They were foreigners. They were from marginalized races or minorities that you would normally expunge from a resume. You wouldn't put people from other races in your genealogy. You'd be like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, a purebred, I'm a purebred Jew. But Jesus includes not just people from other cultures. He includes these women. And I, I don't know about you, but what's going on in our world today is just crazy with How many women are coming forward with the hashtag, me too? Man, we live in a society where for so long, men in power have felt they can push down women, they can do whatever they want. And now women are starting to speak up, which I think is great. But it is so sad to see how many women have been affected by men in power. And what I love is Jesus is saying (laughs) The women with the hashtag me too, I want you in my family tree. And that's why I wanted to talk about this today, is just in our society, in what is going on, this is so important to say we don't marginalize or push down women. We elevate them, we lift them up. Let's look at the first woman mentioned in the resume, the genealogy of Jesus, Tamar. Tamar had Perez and Zara with Judah, who was her father-in-law. Now that's a little crazy. But by Jewish law, this meant she was committing incest. It's a long, kind of crazy story you can read for yourself. We dove into it last year when we went through Genesis. But the short version is she was a widow. Her husband had died. Her second husband had died. And her father-in-law was supposed to give her her youngest son for her to marry, to carry on her family line. But he didn't want to do that because he was worried that he'd die too. And so because he didn't do the right thing, Tamar tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her, and that's how she became pregnant with twins. It's a crazy story. You can look it up again. And Jesus is owning her, saying, nope, she's in my family. Then there's Rahab. Rahab wasn't just a foreigner, a Canaanite from the wrong race, but she was a prostitute. She's a prostitute. Then we have Ruth, a Moabite. She also came from the wrong race, and she was a widow and rather aggressive in pursuing Boaz. She has a whole book of Bible about her, uh, Ruth. And uh, I read this online, so I thought I'd share this. I just love this, that, you know... If you're single women out there and you're waiting for your Boaz, don't settle for any of his relatives. Broke as, lying ass cheating ass dumb as, drunk as, cheap as, lazy as, and especially his third cousin, beat yoaz. Wait on your boaz and make sure he respects Yoaz. Alright? That's a note for ladies out there who are single. Amen. In Jesus' genealogy, he owns these women on his resumes. You have not only gender outsiders, you have racial outsiders, and you have moral outsiders, immoral people. See, in the Old Testament, the law of Moses excluded these women from the presence of God, from worshiping in the tabernacle. They weren't allowed to go in there. They were outsiders. These women, according to the law of Moses, were permanently excluded from the presence of God, and yet Jesus brings them in. Jesus Christ brings in People that the law of Moses excluded. Why? Why does Jesus do that? It's not just the family tree. Remember, this is his resume. Why is this important? Jesus is owning them. You can say it another way, Jesus is proud of them. He's proud to have them in his family tree, in his genealogy. So why, why does Jesus bring in people that the law of Moses excluded? The answer, are you ready for this? The answer to the question of why would Jesus bring them in? It's the whole rest of the New Testament. (laughs) I hope you can recognize good writing. Matthew is raising questions that the rest of his book and the rest of the New Testament is going to answer. So, I'm going to close in prayer so you can go home and read the rest of the New Testament and find out the answer to that question. All right, let's go. Just kidding. Uh, Matthew actually gives us a clue, though, but he is... Opening up, saying, This is why the whole New Testament is here. Now, Matthew's given us a clue. If you've been paying very careful attention to the song I sang, if you were reading ahead in the genealogy, there's one that is different than the rest. Have you caught it? Have you you caught it? The little little clue Matthew gives us? He hints at a woman, but he doesn't name her. Verse 5 through 7. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. The wife of Uriah. She has a name, the mother of Solomon, but he doesn't use it. Bathsheba. Do you remember her story? Maybe you've read her story. If not, that's totally fine. We'll give you the quick version. Bathsheba was David's wife and the mother of Solomon, the wisest man to ever live. He wrote the book that we went through in October, The Song of Solomon. But Matthew doesn't call her Bathsheba. He calls her the wife of Uriah. Why why does Matthew do that? That's kind of weird. He names the other women, but he doesn't name Bathsheba. Now, this is not a slam on Bathsheba. He's not saying, oh, she's terrible, so I'm not even going to list her name. Matthew would never Do that. He never shames or demeans women, especially women who are the victim of sexual assault. But this is an enormous slam on King David. Why? David's the one guy that everyone wants on their resume. David is the one guy that you want in your family tree. He's the ultimate insider. Number one, he's a dude, he's a male. Number two, he's a king, the greatest king in the history of Israel. He's not an idol worshiper like many of the other kings. He's devout. He's the giant slayer, a poet, and a warrior. If there's a name that everyone wanted, it was David. So what's Matthew doing here? By calling her Uriah's wife, he's forcing you to remember the whole story, not just gloss over the good parts of King David's story, not just remember him as a hero. He wants us to remember that Bathsheba was Uriah's wife first, and David lusted after her, and then David raped her. And in order to get her and cover up his sexual assault, he had Uriah killed so that he could marry her. In one stroke, Matthew is forcing all of us to remember all this stuff about this great king, this one great king that everyone would be so excited to have on their resume. What Matthew is saying I want you to understand, if you hear nothing else this morning, is that Matthew is saying that King David, the ultimate insider, that everyone wants on their resume, is no better than a prostitute. The prostitute is right there next to the king in the genealogy. What Matthew is saying is that David, the king, who the ultimate insider, he has no more right to enter the presence of a holy God than Rahab, the prostitute. Yes, irreligious, irreligious immoral people don't deserve the love and forgiveness and blessing of God but neither do religious moral people oftentimes the sin of religious moral people don't look as obvious but in their heart they love God with all their hearts minds souls and strength to love their neighbor as themselves perfectly no oftentimes religious people's sins are the sins of pride and feeling superior and always feel like they're right and therefore with the message of Matthew what is he trying to tell us here It says that anyone who relates to God, whether you're King David or you're Rahab the prostitute, all have to relate to God through sheer grace. Because all are equally lost. The prostitute and the king, right there next to each other in the genealogy, they're equally lost. But because Jesus has brought them both in, they're equally loved. It doesn't matter how high you are, whether you're King David, the ultimate insider. It doesn't matter how low you are, the victim of sexual assault and abuse. It doesn't matter if you're an insider. It doesn't matter if you're an outsider. It doesn't matter if you've been a victim like Bathsheba. You can experience God's grace and be a part of Jesus' family. And what's so incredible about the good news of Jesus is that even in Matthew's genealogy, the begats, that we so easily want to skip over, even that part is dripping with love and grace. Can you feel that? What does this mean then? What does this mean for you and me? It means that it doesn't really matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It only matters if you're in Jesus' family. That's what matters. Then and only then do you get a name. The only way you get a name, the only an identity that lasts is by being connected to Jesus. These names we just read, that I just sang, Tamar and Ruth and Mary, the unwed teenager, the mother of Jesus, they lived thousands of years ago, and yet here we are, 2017, talking about them in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Why? Why have their names lasted for thousands of years? Because they're connected to Jesus. Jesus has owned them. Jesus said, they're with me and he offers the same invitation to you and me. Apart from a relationship with Jesus, your name will perish. It doesn't matter the good or bad things you've done in this life. Your great-grandchildren will barely remember you. Unless you're connected to Jesus Christ. Do you understand the honor of being a Christ follower? He's proud of you. He owns you. He sings over you. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us he's proud to call us brothers and sisters no matter for insiders or outsiders, whatever we've done or whatever's been done to us. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, says this Who cares what the peasants think if you have the love of the king? Who cares what peasants think if you have the love of the king? One of my favorite stories is uh, there were two aspiring authors, John and Jack, who were very close friends, and they got together on a regular basis to Talk about their writings and share ideas, uh, and 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 John and Jack would, would take these long walks in the in the English countryside, and they and they'd be talking about life and and, and they both served uh, in World War One in the trenches and saw horrible things, and it affected them in different ways. And one day, as as they walked along, uh, Jack was, was saying how he loved these ancient myths and these stories ancient English myths and, and, and Greek, and he loved all these stories, but it's just so sad that, you know what, but they're not true. And, and wouldn't that be neat if those stories, those myths were true? And John turned to his friend Jack, and he said, but they are true. And he shared that through Jesus Christ, all myths become true. That through Jesus Christ, that longing that we have for good to triumph over evil, for the knight to come and slay the dragon, for the orphan to be adopted by the family, that through Jesus all those echoes become true. And that had a profound influence on Jack. And Jack, as a young man, in his 20s, gave his life to Jesus and said he was going to use the rest of his life to tell him people about the true myth of Jesus, the true story. Uh, Jack, as his friends called him, uh, his name as, as, as a writer was C.S. Lewis. His friend John, you might know as J.R.R. Tolkien. And together they wrote The Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, telling the story of Jesus in a different way. See, this is the whole claim of Christianity. It's not once upon a time. It's not some myth or fairy tale. This really happened. It's true. All of it. Jesus is the prince who wakes you up. He's the knight that slays the dragon. He's Daddy Warbucks who adopts the orphan and makes you his heir. If Jesus was really born in a manger, if he really rose from the dead, then all those things that you have secretly longed for, all those fairy tales you've ever read, will come true. You will be rescued. You will escape death. Good will triumph over evil. You will live happily ever after. You'll find, finally, a home and a forever family. Through Jesus Christ, all myths and stories become true. See, if Jesus is just a legend, just a nice story, the best thing he can do for you is just be an example. Uh, Seasons of giving, be like Jesus. But if it actually happens, and He wasn't just a legend, then you and I can be saved by grace. And you can be someone that Jesus is proud of, no matter what you have done. Whether you're an insider or an outsider, no matter where you come from, No matter what race you are, no matter who has hurt you, who has assaulted you, who has abused you, Jesus welcomes you. Wherever you are, whatever has been done to you, Jesus gives you that invitation. We want to invite you into God's family. And you can do that now, you can do that whenever. The Bible tells us that if we put our hope and trust in him and not in ourselves, if we tell Jesus, I want to be a part of your family, he'll welcome us with open arms. You don't have to say a certain prayer. You don't have to sign up for a membership class. You can join God's family right here, right now. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And I'm just going to give you that chance to respond if you'd like. I'm going to write the band up. God, I thank you that you saw us in darkness and that we came from a place where our hearts long for truth, that our hearts long to be saved, to be rescued, to be adopted. And through Jesus, all those myths, all those fairy tales, all those stories become true. God, I pray that for those in this room who have been wronged, who have been abused like Tamar, like Bathsheba, like Ruth. God, that they would find forgiveness and hope. They would find peace, maybe for the first time, through you. God, that they would let go of shame and know, God, that you are proud to have them in their family. God, I pray for those of us who maybe grew up knowing the story, like David. We feel like insiders. But God, we have maybe, we've messed up in ways that aren't maybe as obvious. God, that we wouldn't come to you based on our own boasting. But God, that we would recognize that we need your grace just as much as anyone else. God, for those in this room who are not a follower of you, who wouldn't consider themselves to be a part of your family, I pray right now, God, that they would put their hope and trust in you. God, that they would choose to follow you. If you would like to be a part of Jesus' family right now, you can just repeat this prayer after me. God, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. I've messed up. Forgive me of my sins. Adopt me into your family. Be my leader, my savior, my friend, my father. Thank you, God, for forgiving me. Thank you, God, for adopting me into your family. Help me to follow you. Amen. Wherever you are, Jesus invites you, come, follow me. Imagine if all of us, this Christmas time, we shared that story, that the longing in our heart when we see movies like Lord of the Rings, like Chronicles of Narnia, like Annie, the musical, there's something that stirs inside of us. If We can tell our friends, our families to say, that, that thing you feel inside, when you go see that movie, when you read that book, It's pointing to something true and real, and that's Jesus. It's not just some fairy tale that we read about in the Christmas season. He really came. It's true, all of it. And he wants to adopt you into his family. He wants to own you and be proud of you. Let's do that this season. Let's share the love, the grace of Christ to say it doesn't matter if you're insider or outsider, what you've done, what's been done to you. Jesus says, come, come. Would you stand with me? We're gonna close our service. The band's gonna sing a song. We're gonna receive an offering. Um, I feel like before we move on though, let's let's just take another minute Actually ended early tonight to this morning, so which is awesome. Uh, so we have a couple extra minutes here, um, but let's just take a second to pause. Uh, and so often in, in our culture, we go, 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 go. No time for reflection, for pausing. Uh, before the band plays, let's just take take uh, just 30 seconds or so, and uh, just say, God, what is it right now that you're speaking to me? Is there something I need to release to you? Is it fears? Is it worries? Is it shame? Is it guilt? Some something in your past that you've never released to him. Give that to God. And pray God, what do I need to receive from you this morning? Wisdom, grace, love, peace, patience? Whatever that might be. Let's take a minute and then we'll close our service. Uh, let's pause and reflect. God, help us to know what things we need to let go of and not hold on to anymore. Whether it's our shame, our guilt, our perfectionism, our pride, and God, to receive from you your love, your grace, your direction. Thank you, God, that in this season we can reflect on how you came, how you always Fulfill your promises. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. This week, may Christ be in you in all that you do. And may Christ work through you as you go throughout your week, as you do your jobs, as you raise your kids. May the love of Christ shine through love and grace and peace to all that you interact this week. you for singing. We'll receive an offering. And uh, as Ryan said, let's. Spend some time connecting with one another. Have a great week.